From Goldman Sachs Research, this is Allison Nathan. Welcome to Top of Mind, a podcast that explores macroeconomic issues on the minds of our clients. In this episode, we focus on the topic that's on almost everyone's minds right now, how and when to reopen the U.S. economy following aggressive lockdowns to slow the spread of COVID-19, which have taken a huge toll on economic growth and employment. We'll look at what a safe reopening might look like, how well positioned the U.S. is to achieving one, and how quickly reopening would really translate into economic recovery, all things which are clearly top of mind. For some perspective on this, I first turned to Dr. Zeke Emanuel, Vice Provost for Global Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania and a former health policy advisor in the Obama administration. I started by asking him about the national reopening guidelines recently rolled out by the Trump administration. When we think about the guidelines that the administration rolled out for reopening, where do they get it right and where do they fall short? So I think they got right three important things. That we're gonna have a phased reopening, they had three phases. That may or may not be the right number of phases, but that it's phased is really important. Recognize that different kinds of non-essential businesses are probably going to open at different stages. You're going to start with some, and you're going to have others at the end, and also emphasizes special protections for vulnerable populations, particularly people living in elderly facilities. So I think those are right and appropriate. There are lots of things wrong with the plan. The triggers or gating they have for opening, I think, are incorrect. They want to open based upon 14 days of declining cases and hospital capacity. Hospital capacity seems right, but the number of cases, the trigger, seems wrong. I think a appropriate trigger is what's your absolute level of infection. You still could have a very high transmission rate. As we're seeing, there's a sort of plateau with a very slow decline in many places. You know, you can't have a very high transmission rate and open up. You need a low rate, around 20 per million population, not 14 days of time. I think the second thing is under large gatherings, they put in many, many sort of heterogeneous groups. They have restaurants and they have sporting events and they have religious services. Those are very different. And I don't think they should be clumped under one common rubric. Sporting events, you have people crammed together, even if you limited the number of sides you can have. You have the problem at the entry gate, problem at the concession stands, the bathrooms, the high fives, the shouting where all sorts of droplets get spewed into the air. It's just not the same as a restaurant where you can remove half the table, space them out, have people wear face masks, no one gets up and shouts across the restaurant. So I think that's a bad mistake. Also, they have no plan there for handling resurgence. Say you get a flare-up of COVID-19 in the community. What do you do? There's nothing listed there or specified. When it comes to a phase reopening, what might make the most sense so that we avoid another flare-up of the virus? Here's more from Dr. Emanuel. How would you think about the sequence of reopening that makes the most sense? You've got a certain group of non-essential businesses, whether they're restaurants with masks and temperature testing at the start, they're businesses where you can actually do physical distancing inside the offices. I think those are probably going to be your first set of businesses. And I think schools, camps over the summer are very good places to try. 
We know that infection rates in kids is low, and it's very hard to see any deaths below 19, even below 30. is not unheard of, but pretty rare. I would do it on a voluntary basis so that people understand the risks they're taking. They don't want to take the risk, or if there's someone who, say, has an autoimmune disease or some other lung compromise or severe diabetic, they don't want a chance that the kid's going to bring it home from school, can opt out and continue education in other ways online. So I think that's a place to start. And by the way, Denmark is doing it so we can actually watch carefully what Denmark is doing. I then turned to Dr. Mark McClellan, director of the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy at Duke University, who was FDA commissioner in the George W. Bush administration. Dr. McClellan agrees with Dr. Emanuel that any reopening must be done in phases. How should we think about an appropriate phasing? I think the notion of just dialing up the dimmer gradually with uh, pause for a few weeks at each step is important to make sure that we're not getting into conditions of less controlled spread. And those initial steps would include more retail businesses under conditions that look a lot like essential businesses today with masks, frequent cleaning, hand washing and hand sanitizing, distancing and stores and establishments way below their full capacity to support distancing, going more slowly with activities and businesses that involve more people closer together, so bars and larger social events, and also an important attention to reopening daycare, preschool, and school programs in some fashion because that's so important for the well-being of kids and also so important for helping the rest of the economy get going. And then I think extra steps for people who are at higher risk, the morbidity and mortality from COVID-19 is concentrated heavily in older individuals, people with serious comorbid conditions, other serious health problems. And I would expect the rules and the best practices for them to look different than for others in society. Both doctors McClellan and Emmanuel also agree that the key to any safe reopening is an improvement on both the testing and contact tracing fronts. Here's Dr. Emmanuel. We're at about 130 a day. The minimum number I've seen has been 500,000 a day. And I think a main reason, which I don't really understand, is that the CDC has guidelines which suggest that you should test people who are symptomatic in the low numbers in terms of what we need, the 500,000 are. Yes, it shouldn't just be people who have severe symptoms. It should be people with moderate symptoms. But I think both of those are the wrong approach. We've suggested 2 million a day because what's the big issue in opening up the economy? It's spread. It's transmission. And to get a handle on transmission, you need to focus on a bunch of four groups, but let me emphasize two of them. One are frontline people who have a lot of contact with others. So whether it's frontline healthcare workers, grocery workers, policemen, and first responders, those are the people that have to be tested, and they have to be tested regularly, like every week. If you just add those groups up, that's 7 million people testing them every week is 7 million tests, that's a million a day. And they haven't even gotten to patients. And then the second group, which is really important, the potential real threats here to flare-ups are people who are asymptomatic, and could spread the virus to many other people, so-called super spreaders. Now, how do you get asymptomatic people? That cannot simply be by testing people with symptoms. They're, by definition, not having symptoms. And you need to find them by 
who's having a lot of contacts. So you need some technology. You have to find them by random sampling of people frequently. And they're hard to find, but they're essential. We're going to do this safely because we've seen, for example, just a few people can spread it. We've seen this in South Dakota at the Smithfield meat processing plant. You saw that at the Biogen meeting in Boston. You saw this at the 40th birthday party in Connecticut. One person, asymptomatic, can easily spread it around. And here's Dr. McClellan. I think more testing is better. You can imagine with further improvements in the testing technology, with more availability of rapid point of care tests that are accurate enough, we can move into more regular testing in populations that are asymptomatic. And that'll certainly help as we get to more advanced stages of reopening schools, major events, things like that. But for now, the priorities for testing include people with symptoms and close contacts of people who have tested positive and testing in these higher risk settings like among healthcare workers and nursing facilities and assisted living facilities and the like that have been so significant in contributing to mortality and morbidity for this outbreak. And we are approaching, if not at the level of testing that could enable that level of ongoing surveillance. The challenge is not just having the tests available somewhere in the country, though. The challenge is getting the tests along with the associated materials, the swabs, and when the tests are actually run, the reagents, to the places that they're needed quickly. And this is sort of the current version of the surge related to the pandemic that we faced this past month when the challenge was rapidly growing number of cases and hospital capacity and ventilator capacity and protective equipment capacity. So we're trying to ramp up availability of testing locally in the same way. And it's not just a question of having enough equipment, it's having the systems in place, logistics, situational awareness in each state and region to assure that we are getting the tests to where they're needed and that they're performed and acted on quickly enough to be effective containment. I would say that different states and different regions of the country are in uneven levels of development in terms of that effective capacity, but we're definitely making a lot of progress. They also emphasize that even a slight uptick in cases detected by an effective testing regime should prompt at least some reimposition of restrictions. Here's more from Dr. Emanuel. Once we do start to reopen, under what conditions do you think policymakers need to consider reimposing mitigation measures? You don't want to wait for the exponential growth to reimpose some of the restrictions because the number you see today reflects what happened 14 or more days ago. So if you're seeing an increase today, that means the increase happened 14 days ago. And you've had two weeks in which it's been able to spread. And that's the problem I think people have is understanding that if you wait for the numbers to really be escalating in the exponential phase, we're too late. You want to make sure that you don't get there, so you're going to have to monitor very, very carefully. That's where the testing and contact tracing come into play in order to open up. And here's Dr. McClellan. If we seem to be having an uptick in cases or even risk factors for an uptick in cases that seems to be reflecting a weakness or a flaw in our reopening steps, we should be 
pretty quick to take at least incremental steps towards pausing or incremental steps back. These may happen differently by region or area within a state, not necessarily at the level of the whole state, but we're definitely not out of the woods on this and need very high level of vigilance to pull back on reopening before the pandemic gets out of control again. As for what all of this might mean for the economy, I asked Dr. Emanuel how likely it is that we see a start-stop economy given the need to manage potential outbreaks. He says the extent to which that happens will likely depend on public adherence to ongoing mitigation measures. But he also cautions that reopening the economy may not deliver much of an economic reprieve in any case if healthiers keep people from going out, even if businesses reopen. One of the things we've learned from the last, call it six weeks, is our response matters. We can actually materially change the course of this illness. So you say, how many roller coasters are we going to get? Well, it depends on whether we actually adhere to the physical distancing when we reopen. People actually wear masks when we reopen. We take all the precautions we're suggested to take. We've reduced our mobility. So even though we're open, we're not having too many people in the store. We're not having too many people in the restaurant. Businesses that reopen still have physical distancing. If that happens, can we skate through with no resurgence? No. Singapore has suggested that that's not likely to be our path. Could we have one or two or maybe three over the next 18 months? Yes. Could they be isolated? Yes. But it does depend upon how we reopen and how adherent we can encourage the population to be. I would also differentiate between demand side and supply side. Reopening assumes that the problem with getting the economy going is the supply side, right? Non-essential businesses are closed, and that's the problem. We've got to get them open, and everyone will come rushing back spending money. That may not be true, right, despite the protesters. We've seen polls that say, I'm not going out if that's going to endanger my health. We also get that from the fact that it appears that prior to the shelter-in-place orders and other such orders, a large number of people reduced their mobility, stopped going to church, stopped going out as much. So there is evidence that people are taking it seriously and they don't want to risk their own lives. So the issue is it may in fact be a demand-side problem, and that demand-side problem is not something you're going to mitigate just by opening up a restaurant. It's something you're going to get back when you have effective testing regime and people can be reassured that when they go out, say, to a restaurant or some other business, they're not going to get COVID and get sick. All that said, of course, development of herd immunity or discovery of effective treatments and ultimately a vaccine for COVID-19 will mark critical turning points for economic normalization. To help explain where we are on those potential milestones, I turned to Dr. Barry Bloom from Harvard University's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I first asked him what we know about the development of immunity to this disease. When people have recovered and have antibodies, how much do we know about whether that will protect them from getting the virus again? The antibodies to common cold viruses don't last more than one to two years. They're very short-lived. Measles antibodies are essentially, if you're infected, you have them almost for life. At this point with this virus, it is absolutely, to my knowledge, unclear to what extent it protects against reinfection and to what extent it persists beyond a year or two. And I think that 
we're just going to have to look at the many patients now who have recovered from hospitalization. I think that population will answer, hopefully, by the end of the summer, whether any of them are able to be readily reinfected. But with my experience in a lifetime working in biology, I would expect people who recover that have proper antibodies to the right target would have at least two years of protection, and that would be enormously valuable. But both Dr. Bloom and Dr. McClellan caution that while antibody tests are just beginning to be used, the likelihood is that the vast majority of the American population has not been exposed to the virus. So development of herd immunity is unfortunately not likely to help in reopening. Here's Dr. McClellan. I think antibody testing is going to play a significant role in the future. It can potentially be helpful in identifying individuals who have immunity and therefore don't need to take the same kind of precautions as others to avoid the risk of contracting or transmitting the virus. But the science is not there now. We need more tests to get a clear understanding of just how sensitive and just how specific antibody tests are. In the meantime, one short-term use for the antibody testing, even if it's not perfectly accurate in determining immunity, is to give an idea of how much exposure there's been to COVID-19 in different communities around the United States. Some of the early tests suggest a significantly higher prevalence of COVID-19 exposure than the positive test results for presence of the virus that have been reported would suggest, perhaps five or 10 times as many cases. The only caution I'd add to that is that even if there has been much more widespread exposure to COVID-19, and even if there is much more widespread immunity, we're still talking about a small fraction of the population in most cases. 5%, 10% of the population maybe, maybe a bit higher in really hard-hit areas like New York City, but the vast majority of Americans, according to all of the data that we've seen so far, are not immune to COVID-19. And what that means is these antibody tests, these serology tests, even when we do get them right, which I hope we will in the coming weeks, are not a whole or even a primary solution. When it comes to the development of the ultimate solution to safe reopening, a vaccine, Dr. Bloom thinks it will still likely take at least 18 months. And while that might sound like a long time, he stresses that would be a record fast timeline. Are we still looking at 12 to 18 months for the vaccine? Vaccines are going to take a year and a half, and I would guess it wouldn't surprise me even longer. But whatever timeline we see will be faster than anyone could possibly have conceived of up until the last couple of years. So put it in a context that I find helpful. We think about vaccines as being developed against a particular virus or bacterium. And that's what we have always done from 1796 when Jenner did cowpox against smallpox up until now. And that takes an enormous amount of time, effort, growing this stuff, killing it, being sure that it's all dead, isolating proteins, growing them up, very expensive processes. So what's changed since SARS and since the big threats of flu is... We think now about not individual vaccines against individual viruses. We think of platforms. We think of a system in which we can substitute almost instantly the protein from one virus 
into an attenuated carrier virus. And that's a one-step deal. Or we don't need the virus. We don't need to purify the protein. We can take the RNA of the virus, just that codes for the protein that will generate protective antibodies, and just inject that in a particularly useful way and get the body to make the antibodies. All of that, I've just told you, is unprecedented. But companies are developing the vaccine, making the constructs, and testing for safety, which is number one, because the difference between drugs and vaccines, as I always like to say, is drugs go into people who are sick, whose lives are at stake. But vaccines go into healthy people, so you have to be bloody sure that it's as safe as it can be. And that requires three levels of human testing. That's all going to take time, but it will be the shortest time ever in the history of any vaccines. I am quite confident. Also, many of the biotech companies have brilliant platforms, but they don't have the capacity to produce a billion doses in a year. So that's why it takes a while. Dr. McClellan agrees that not only developing vaccines, but planning now for future mass distribution of them must be a priority today. Here he is. Uh, regulatory community and the scientific community has come together around some relatively very efficient ways of doing the clinical testing. The bigger challenge, I think, is going to be ramping up manufacturing capacity efficiently. And an example of how this can be handled is pre-committing, essentially, to very large manufacturing capacity so that if and when a vaccine does show it's clinically effective, there can be essentially no delay in the very large-scale distribution of the vaccine to people who would benefit in the U.S. and around the world. At every stage of the pandemic, it's planning for surge capacity that always seems to be the limit on our ability to respond. And there's no more important surge capacity to plan for than the ability to distribute very large quantities of any vaccine that's shown to be safe and effective quickly around the world. It's really got to be a top-level issue for all countries. That said, once we do have a widely available vaccine, Dr. Bloom doesn't believe mutation of the virus will be a problem for its sustained effectiveness. Here he is again. One of the things the vaccine makers have been working hard on is the receptor that the virus binds to on epithelial cells is called the ACE2 receptor. And that then is a very good target for antibodies for two reasons. The first is if the antibody binds to all the binding motifs, then the virus can't bind and you don't get an infection. The second is what happens if the virus mutates and viruses, and this one no different, will mutate. Well, if you're targeting the major or the only receptor that can get it into a cell, if it mutates to elude the antibody, it's also no longer going to be able to get into cells or not very effectively. So it's the ideal target such that if it does mutate, it won't be infectious. I'm actually optimistic that mutations is not going to be the major problem with the coronavirus. Finally, Dr. Bloom is also confident that while we wait on a vaccine, we'll find useful treatments for the virus as early as this fall. There are 440 listed clinical trials, either planned or underway. I find that astonishing. I mean, there are a lot of diseases out there for which there are fewer than a dozen. So there's a huge rush 
for this. Second, I'm pretty optimistic that some of them will work in a shorter time than the time that we have vaccines. So there are two things that they target. One is they target the virus. And the second thing they target is the immune response, the cytokine storm that kills people. And they are possibly quite independent in different phenomena. So targeting the virus, there are two drugs that already exist that you know about, remdesivir and another drug called vapapiravir. And both of them have now shown in preliminary studies in COVID-2 that they could have a significant degree of protection. But the only way to know is randomized control trials. They might be available by the end of the summer, certainly by the middle of the fall, would be my guess. I'm also optimistic about the potential for a biological drug that works against inflammatory cytokines. So I'm pretty optimistic that some or all of this will be developed in a reasonable time frame. As we continue to follow turning points in treatments and vaccines for COVID-19, those developments and how and when the economy reopens will remain top of mind. I'll leave it there for now. We wish you good health during this difficult time. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. I'm Allison Nathan. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, and I'll see you next time. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.